Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, to the end of that chapter, as we return to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And let me begin our time by simply reading the passage for us this morning, Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, it's not difficult to figure out what this passage is all about. Jesus mentions it a number of times. Do not be anxious, verse 25. And again, verse 27, don't be anxious or or, uh, stop being anxious. Verse 28, why are you anxious? Or verse 31, do not be anxious. Or again in verse 34, do not be anxious. So it's crystal clear what this is all about. It's a passage about anxiety. It's a passage about worry, fear, fretting about the unknown, about the future, those kind of unpleasant uh, sensations of dread or feelings of dread that come over us over anticipated challenges or threats of pending events or whatever it might be. And this is an immensely practical section for us because of the reality of this kind of anxiety in our lives. Anxiety is, of course, one of the sad symptoms of our modern society, our materialistic society. According to the National Institutes of Health, an estimated 19.1% of U.S. adults have had anxiety disorders over the last year. Almost one in five. The World Health Organization, in its own study, found that it's about 18% in developed nations around the world, and almost 25% are women struggling with anxiety. And when you look just at adolescents, people in the age of 14 to 25, it's one out of three who struggle with what are called anxiety disorders. 
The World Health Organization declares that anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disorders in the world, according to them. It's associated with having a hard time concentrating, feeling tired, sleepy all the time, having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, having muscle aches, headaches, stomach aches, even indescribable or unexplainable pain, feeling restless, having difficulty relaxing, feeling on edge all the time, or just being irritable all the time. All of those sort of symptoms that they, uh, they note are associated, according to the World Health Organization, with these anxiety disorders. Again, the National Institutes of Health define general anxiety disorder as a high degree of nervousness about everyday circumstances, such as job security, job performance, health, finances, well-being of your children or family, being late or being found to be irresponsible in your tasks, or just simply completing daily chores or other responsibilities. All of these things, they say, characterize those who are diagnosed with anxiety disorder. And the recommended treatment, according to the National Institutes of Health, the most common treatment for all of these people, one in five people, is psychotherapy or medication. You speak to pharmacists, and I think many would tell you that it is a shocking amount of people who are on these kinds of medications for anxiety every day. Even for those who are not diagnosed with that high level of anxiety, they still feel the battle. They still struggle fretting over all kinds of things, fretting over their finances, fretting over their jobs, worrying about deadlines, worrying about relationships, wondering and being filled with anxiety over family feuds and rebellious teenagers or the safety of their family and their children. They worry about disease. They worry about infection. They worry about all kinds of things. Or on a more general level, people are just worried about their nation. They're worried about politics. They're worried about the future of their country. They're worried about totalitarian oppression. They're worried about the state of the economy. They're worried about the fracturing of their nation and society. They're worried about runaway inflation or about the environment or possibly about wars and nuclear holocaust. Or they're worried about social unrest and racial injustice or they're worried about the degradation of morals in society and the corruption of the influence of media. People are worried about all kinds of things. And of course, these are the things which are constantly blasted into your mind day in and day out, hour after hour by news media whose job it is to get your attention for as long as they can so that they can sell as many advertising slots as they can and make the most money that they can. So every thing that they report becomes breaking news. 
And every event is magnified beyond its mundane place so that it becomes an existential threat, not only to your nation, but to you and your well-being. And people watch this stuff every day and they listen to this stuff on their radios or their podcasts or wherever they get their news and every wave prompts a new eruption of anxiety. And everyone walks around with sort of an inflated sense of their own responsibility for all of this. They, they uh, never knew that there were problems until they listened to the latest news broadcast and now they're just gripped Asking themselves, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to stop this? Whatever catastrophe we're told is next coming. And so we have become a nation full of worried people. Living, as one author says, with the sort of low hum of anxiety always vibrating in the background of our minds. And then we read a passage like this. And we can't help but be rattled by the stark assertion that we should be people who are free of anxiety. In fact, according to Jesus, worrying is a problem that has its primary source in a warped, view of God. He confronts this with a number of almost sarcastic questions to make you reflect on the fact that worrying and anxiety stem from a distorted view of God. You're not thinking of God properly when you're worrying, plain and simple. You're not thinking of God properly. And so the, the antidote of this worry is in that sense very easy, very straightforward. It is simply to correct your view of God, to align your thinking with what God tells you about Himself and about His acts. Jesus says, do not be anxious, do not worry. It's inconsistent with your profession of faith. It's inconsistent with a right view of God. It is demeaning It is dishonorable to God for you to think that way, to be worried that way. Do not be anxious, plain and simple. Now, what Jesus is talking about here, we should note, is different from godly concerns that sometimes dominate our minds and our prayers. There are times when we are engaged or gripped in spiritual battle that literally burden us throughout the day. Paul fought those kinds of battles. He says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he had all of these hardships in ministry. He was beaten. He was robbed. He was, he was uh, left without a place to sleep. He went, he went starving. He went thirsty. He was shipwrecked. He had all these hardships. And then he says, in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11, apart from all of these things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He actually describes 
what he felt in his pastoral concern for other Christians as a kind of anxiety. He says in verse 29, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? So there's a legitimate kind of a concern that we have for other brothers and sisters in Christ, which Paul describes as a kind of anxiety. He says to the Colossians, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul says, I'm kind of, I'm kind of always struggling in my heart. There's always this sort of, there's this tension that's in my heart because I want so desperately for you to finally understand the riches that you have in Christ. He even spoke of Epaphras, one of his fellow workers in Colossians, Colossians, who he says to them, is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, fully assured in the will of God. So Paul spoke about his life. He spoke about his ministry. He spoke about what, what went on in his heart as a kind of a struggle and a kind of a war and a kind of a race, a kind of a fight filled with all these images both for other believers and also for himself, that he would be more Christ-like, that he would serve God more faithfully. And so many times, you and I can be gripped with those same kind of troubles. We can be troubled by our concern for spiritual health in others. We can be troubled even by the presence of sin in our own life. But those are not the things that Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about that kind of anxiety. Because that kind of anxiety is actually very God-centered anxiety. That kind of anxiety arises when you're thinking of God in all of the right ways. And you're thinking of God's law and God's commandment and God's will in all the correct ways. And when you think of God the way God is supposed to be thought of, then you get very worried and concerned about the deficiencies in your own calling, in your own life, and how you aren't matching up to what God's called you to be, or you're worried about how your friends and neighbors and and loved ones maybe are not, are not understanding the gospel, or you're worried about how your own family and your own uh, uh, spouse or your own children are not walking with the Lord. You become worried and torn up about those things in a very God-centered way. But the worries that Jesus has in mind here are actually those worries that are revealed when God is not a part of your perspective. When you're thinking of the world without God or without a correct view of God, He's not a part of your assessment. He's not a a factor, if you will, in your calculations, at least not the way He should be. This is the kind of worry and anxiety that arises from embracing what is essentially a materialistic worldview, sort of a closed worldview, a closed system where everything is just sort of operating by scientific principles of cause and effect, and it all sort of happens in and of itself, where God is really not a part of the picture. He doesn't stand 
uh, above all those things, as Scripture says he does. He's not seated in the heavens doing as he pleases, as the, as the prophet tells us. Jesus tells us that that kind of worry is ungodly. That kind of worry is sinful. Now, he wants to help us overcome that. He wants to help us have victory over that kind of anxiety. And to do that, he shows us here the remedy for all of that in these few verses, which we'll look at uh, this week and next week. But what he gives us in these verses are basically five explanations of why worry is the wrong response to your problems and how to establish the right perspective that will remedy your worry. Five explanations of why worry is the wrong response to your problems. The first one that he gives us in verse 25 and 26 is that worry underestimates God's power to provide. Worry underestimates God's power to provide. If you remember in verse 24, we saw last week that Jesus told us that we are to be slaves of God. Remember, we cannot serve, we cannot be slaves of two masters, we cannot be slaves of materialism and also slaves of God. We can't be slaves of money and be slaves of God. Which would raise in the minds of some people, well, if we're not going to serve money, if we're not going to be slaves to our work, or if we're not going to be slaves to our bank account, if we're not going to be slaves to our money, then how are we going to survive? How are we going to make it? Jesus answers that in verse 25 and 26, beginning with the word, therefore, reminding them of God's power to provide. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Those are the kinds of questions that uh, not only come because he commanded them not to be slaves of money, but especially for his audience These were daily concerns. I mean, these were relatively poor people, although maybe better off than any people up to that point in the world. The Roman Empire had brought a a stronger economy than most of them had probably ever seen or known. Uh, They're not necessarily subsistence farmers. We, We know that, historians tell us, because subsistence living generally leads to slow population growth or in some cases declines in population since people are basically living on the edge of starvation all the time and a number of people are starving to death on a regular basis. But that wasn't true in the Roman Empire. During the Roman Empire, there was a massive increase in population, which was also going hand in hand with an increase in the, in the standard of living, although most of the wealth was concentrated in a few big cities, uh, much of it, of course, in Rome itself, uh, as much as 20% of the entire wealth of the Roman Empire was concentrated in the city of Rome. 
But even apart from that, most of the wealth, even in the Middle East, would be concentrated in, uh, in urban centers like Jerusalem. But 90% of the people still lived outside of that environment, basically making their way by farming or by fishing. They depended day in and day out on good conditions of the weather for their food, for their crops, hoping that there wouldn't be drought or hoping there wouldn't be swarms of insects that would come and wipe out their food supply. Rivers, of course, in Israel could quickly dry up. Uh, During periods of drought, people would dig cisterns to catch rainwater or to catch water out of the wadis that would fill up with, uh, with water during the rainy seasons. But even those resources would run dry as the dry seasons uh, ran their course. So food and drink were difficult and even clothing wasn't easy to come by. A family barely had enough money to purchase their day-to-day meals. They hardly had uh, extra money to purchase pre-made clothing, and so they typically would process their own wool, uh, which was readily available because there were plenty of sheep, but the processing wasn't easy. Charles Quarles writes this. He says, once wool had been sheared from the sheep, it had to be combed to remove debris and tangles. The individual strands were then spun into thread. The thread was then woven into fabric on a loom. The fabric was softened, made watertight by pounding it with a fuller's mallet. Sometimes the fabric was dyed. And only after this time-consuming process was the wool ready to be made into garments. When a wife was already expected to grind flour, bake bread every day from scratch, prepare meals, clean the home, wash the clothes that were already in their possession, tend to the children, meet her husband's needs, uh, concern for finding the time to keep her family clothed could become a source of anxiety. Many of the wife's other duties had to be performed on a daily basis. If any duty was put off for another day because she simply could not complete all of her tasks, she would likely choose putting off her wool work. However, If she did not stay on schedule with each step of this long and tedious process of preparing clothing, it would catch up with her. As winter approached, her clothes wore out. The stresses of work could easily overwhelm her. End quote. So this was not as simple as going down to the goodwill or out to the shopping center and choosing between which colors, which styles. It wasn't even whether or not the cuisine would have all their favorite choices on the menu all the time. When Jesus is talking to these first century believers and he says to them, don't be anxious, he was speaking to people who were well acquainted with the hardships of deprivation and poverty. And yet he commands them not to be anxious. Don't be anxious about what tomorrow will bring. Well, how can he say that? How in the world can he say that? I mean, who in their realistic mind would ever talk to someone that way about those kinds of things. 
Well, he explains how he can say that and why he says that. The second half of verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Which could mean that since God has already given us life and He's already given us a physical body, which are the greater gifts, how much more will He also give us food and clothing? And that's certainly true, sort of a classic argument, if you will, from the greater to the lesser. But I think the point is actually more driven contextually by that. I think it's, it has more to do with how anxiety, how worry tends to narrow your focus. It tends to narrow your scope of life to some all-consuming thing, some all-consuming vision of whatever pressure you believe is threatening you. And Jesus wants to remind you that your life is, way, is worth, uh, or is about, I should say, your life is about far more than whatever that little thing is that you're worried about. When you allow anxiety to take over your life, your field of vision gets so narrow in scope, your focus on how you will eat or how you'll feed your family or in our age, how you'll get your car repair done or whether you'll be able to pay for the leaky roof or whether you'll get that next job or get that next promotion. And this narrowing focus becomes the all-consuming thing. It's all about reaching that goal or doing that thing. Every conversation is pulled by the gravitational pull of what is dominating your heart. And what Jesus is doing is He's calling you back from that restricted focus. Your life is so much more than that particular focus. Your life, your body even, is so much more than what you put on it. Whether it, is, whether it is rags or whether it is the finest silk, there's so much more to it. Eventually, down in verse 33 and 34, Jesus will tell us what the more is. It is the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the manifestations that come out of that. It is understanding how God has given you this body as a vessel to be used for Him. It's understanding how God has given you this life so that it can be set apart and sanctified for Him. It is understanding how God is so much more interested in your sanctification than He is in your ease. How your life is so much more about reflecting His glory than it is about finding your comfort. Your life is so much more. And if you understand that, and you trust that, and you pursue that, God is amply able to take care of you. Which Jesus begins to lay out in verse 26 by directing your attention to the birds. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Which, of course, is a rhetorical question. 
that when you ask yourself, well, well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I am more valuable than a little bird. God's made man in his own image, crowned him with glory and honor, the psalmist says in Psalm 8. You look at those birds, Jesus says, not, not because he wants you to emulate them in every way. He's not uh, urging you to tear down all of your barns and go out every day and pick off the ground whatever kind of little worm or seed you might be able to find and stick it in your mouth. That's not what he's talking about. Some people can glamorize that kind of carefree lifestyle even to the point they become irresponsible. Uh, they, sort of, uh, they sort of couch their faith um, as if it means making no plans for the future. And for them... To make those sort of plans and to live that kind of what they consider stodgy lifestyle is just dull and boring and calculated and restricted. So people glamorize their carefree life, hardly binding themselves to anything, staying away from deadlines, avoiding responsibilities, never taking on challenges, never placing themselves under obligations. So that they can always live what they consider to be an anxious and worry-free life. They want it to be unencumbered. They want to live easy. And so their solution is to flee all responsibility. Rid themselves of all responsibility. But in the name of avoiding anxiety and stress... The reality is they forget that their life is God's. Their body is God's. He created them for a purpose. And rather than beginning with that question and asking themselves, why did God give me this life? Why did God give me this body? Why did God give me whatever it is that I have, this family, this, this job, this, this home? Their attempt is to bring all those things that they can under their own control. And so they pull back from as much responsibility as possible. They even live on the razor's edge until the point that they wind up burdening their own families in times of trouble to bail them out when they did not adequately plan for the future or they burden the church or they burden society in some cases because they have idolized this kind of an idol lifestyle. This is really a misunderstanding of what Jesus is calling you to. In fact, it's a misunderstanding of a biblical view of work. They look at work as if, as if it is something to escape. As if they need to get out of it because it is the source of all of their anxiety and burdens. They look at work as the negative consequence of a fallen world. And they imagine paradise to be a place where you don't have to work at all or work very much. The truth is, paradise... Heaven is filled with work. The Garden of Eden was filled 
with work. Adam and Eve were commanded to till the soil and subdue the earth and all of its resources, everything from the flying birds to the swimming fish and everything that creeps in the ground, on the ground, they were to subdue all of those things. They were to domesticate all of those things. They were to create farming and create livestock uh, uh, ventures. They were to create all these areas of productivity. And this was the command of God within the perfection of the Garden of Eden. He created work. He created it to be done and He created it to be used for His glory. To be done in such a way that it reflects His wisdom. To be done in such a way that it reflects His goodness. To be done in such a way that it reflects His righteousness. It was created by God. And when we view it properly under His providence, it's an avenue by which we magnify His name. The point Jesus is making here is not that the birds do not work. It's the fact that they do not worry. In fact, they're quite busy. I Sometimes, you know, in the spring when we fill up our bird feeder, sometimes I'll sit there with my coffee in the morning and watch how the birds uh, come back and forth to that bird feeder to get those seeds over and over and over again. And in fact, you know, they, they're just darting back and forth and back and forth. And at times they even get into squabbles and fights and chase one another around and chase each other away from the bird feeder. And I sometimes sit there and wonder if they knew this massive bag of seed that I had sitting by my side, if they would just sort of sit and wait their turn because they'll never eat all that seed. What a picture it is of us. Scrambling, squabbling, fighting, worrying, fretting. We don't even begin to exhaust all of God's resources. And when we think that we have worn it down, He has a whole bag, a whole storehouse of stuff from which He can replenish. Jesus' point is that when you worry, you're underestimating the power of God. He has a purpose. He's given you this life. He's given you your body. He's given you your skills, your mind, so that you can employ all of that in seeking the kingdom of God and seeking His righteousness. And then just like the birds who are fulfilling, if you will, their purpose day in and day out, they gather their food, they feed their chicks, they sing their songs, they beautify the world with their colors and their music, doing exactly what God created them to do, never giving thought about tomorrow. They don't have to because God always takes care of them. And you're more valuable than the birds. You're more valuable than any of them. On a much greater scale, God has designed you to bring glory to Him. And Scripture repeatedly reminds us that as we do that, we need not fret. As we devote ourselves to Him, we need not fear. Psalm 147, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody 
to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beast their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope, whose hope is his steadfast love. The Lord asked Job in Job 38, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? You ever looked at a, a, a new nest of birds? We get those sometimes in the trees. We always like to kind of monitor them and watch them. And it's always fun to see the chicks hatch out of their eggs and to watch day in, day out as their mom goes and fetches worms and food and beetles and feeds them. Have you ever seen them turning their beaks upward and squeaking and squealing and thought of them as crying out to God for mercy? Well, whether or not they're conscious of God, probably not. The point is that God hears them. God is compassionate so that the squeak of a little bird gets his attention and he provides for them. That's the point. You might look around at the world around you and look at it through a completely naturalistic worldview and imagine that there's just sort of these impersonal forces, these impersonal laws of nature that govern the the food chain. But a biblical worldview is that of a God who is intimately connected with all of the smallest of details. So that even... The faintest groan and the most broken cry for help. He hears it. And he claims that he's going to be the one who provides. He'll be the one that provides for the animals. He'll be the one that provides for you. Why? Because you're so much more valuable than the animals. You are so much more valuable than those little birds that God supplies food for. A second explanation Jesus gives us of why worry is the wrong response to your problems, not only because it underestimates the power of God to provide, but also in verse 27, it underestimates the futility of fearing the future. It underestimates the futility of fearing the future. Which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to his lifespan? We translate that single hour. The word is cubit, which literally is the distance from the tip of your finger to your elbow, uh, generally for many people, about 18 inches. So some people mistakenly think that Jesus is talking about adding 18 inches to your height. I don't know a lot of people that worry about that. You know, can they suddenly grow 18 inches taller? Maybe a few, but most of us don't want to be seven and a half feet tall. That's generally not what people worry about, but what they do worry about is living a little longer. Jesus is talking about 
uh, worrying about food and clothing, those things that are all about surviving another day. And when we come to this verse, he most likely is using this sort of physical measurement metaphorically to talk about an extension of your lifespan, the length of your life. We sometimes talk about life like a road, like having mileposts along the way. And Jesus is saying worrying about things that would prolong your life is not going to add another 18 inches to your journey. Forget about another mile marker. Forget about another decade, another year, another month, another day. It's not even going to add another minute. Not a single minute to your life is going to be added by worrying about all these things. In fact, if anything we know... Worry, if it would do anything, it would most likely shorten your life. It brings all kinds of, of uh, detrimental things to your health, uh, hypertension and high blood pressure, not to mention overeating and obesity, in many cases, substance abuse. It is not helpful. It is not beneficial. It doesn't do anything. There is an incredible, incredible amount of futility to all of the time that you spend worrying about whatever it is. There are people who worry about cancer. They worry about sickness. They worry about their life somehow being cut short by some disease. And they spend literally hundreds, if not thousands of dollars every year on creams and oils and powders and special foods you listen to Christian radio, it's like one constant infomercial for these things, as if that is the prime audience, Christians, worrying all the time that if they add the right thing to their diet, they're going to extend their life. Psalm 136 says, in your book, O God, are written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. Before you ever ate your first chili cheese dog, God has already ordained your days. Job 14, man is born of woman, And his days are few and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Or Psalm 104, all living things look to the Lord to give them their food in due season. And when you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die. So life and death are in God's hands. The scripture tells us that over and over and over. No one can prolong his life by even a cubit. By even 18 inches, you're consumed all the time thinking about, worrying about what might kill you, what might take away your life, and you can't even, you can't even control it. Always calculating how you're going to avoid this and how you're going to, 
you know, stay away from that and how you're going to do all this as if all of that worry did anything. Look, we need to take care of our bodies so we can have energy and stamina to serve the Lord. It's like work. Biblical view of work is it's not so that it can primarily provide for your physical needs. The Lord is your provider, but we see work as a way of glorifying God. Well, we look at our bodies as instruments by which we can serve the Lord, and we want to do that with the most vigor that we can, so we need to take care of ourselves. But that's about as far as you can take it. Because in the end, none of your efforts are going to add a single moment to your days. It's not going to even prevent you from starvation if you worried about it. Nor is starvation going to take your life if God's not ready for you to go. You can't add an hour to your lifespan, not by your health regimen, not by your retirement planning, not by your worrying. They accomplish nothing. It's like paying the interest on a debt but never actually paying the principal. Or as someone, I think, said it even better, worrying is like paying interest on a debt you may not even owe. You don't even know most of the time whether the things you worry about are going to come reality. I wish I had some sort of calculation. Actually, it's probably better that I don't. All the hours and hours and hours of my life I have wasted planning for things that never happened. Worrying and trying to piece together all these sort of contingency plans for all of these uh, worst case scenarios. And I'm not, you know, against planning, but I'm talking about where you just roll this stuff over again and again and again and again in your mind. And then you fast forward a year and whatever you were worried about never even took place. It's like paying a debt, uh, interest on a debt you don't even owe. Coming up and say, you know what? I'm thinking about buying that house. Uh, Can I go ahead and start paying? Doesn't make a lot of sense. All of these things are just many times exaggerated concerns. But the point is that worrying isn't going to take them away. It's not going to lengthen your life. not going to shorten your life. It serves no purpose. God hasn't given you the privilege to determine your lifespan. He reserves that for Himself. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't add one moment. But we know who does. We do know who gives us our years and our months and our weeks, and our days, and our hours, and our minutes. It's God. And for what it's worth, He can give me as few as He wants to. Uh, I don't have any desire to remain any longer here than I have to. So don't worry. It doesn't do anything. Why? Because you're not God. God. 
because you're not in control. Because you don't have that sovereignty and God hasn't given you that privilege. You don't have that power. God does. And so his message to you is to place it in his hands. Place it in his hands. Well, three more explanations of why worrying is wrong in response to your problems. They'll have to wait for next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful. We need this reminder. We need this truth. We need this light. We are in a world that bombards us. It sounds its alarms at every corner because the world itself is gripped with fear. May we not be as your people. In fact, may we be free of anxiety, free to serve you with our bodies and our life, free to give ourselves joyfully to the task at hand today in front of us of proclaiming your truth, of serving to your glory, of loving one another, of answering threats and hatred with love and grace and not worrying because our God is watching over us. Give us a right view of you to answer all of our troubles in a way that reflects your honor and praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.